0: So good morning ladies and gentlemen welcome back to the ASIAL podcast. I am here with Dr Tony Zalewski. Tony is an experienced security and public safety specialist. He holds four degrees from Australian universities in law, criminology and social sciences and as a qualified trainer Tony has coached many security and public safety specialists across most industry and professional sectors whether public or private. Tony welcome to the show. Thanks John. Now, Tony, tell us a little bit about your background. We've got a, a brief off, a snippet of it there, but you've been in this industry for a long time now. Where did this journey begin for you? Well, it's interesting, actually, because it actually um,
1: commenced in Victoria Police back in uh, 1973. Yep. And um, what I did then was um, I had a, I had a move from a sporting background into policing. So that, that started in 1973, and then I um, resigned in 1990 to finish a law degree. I actually had a criminology degree behind me and um, so uh, I was halfway through a law degree at Monash University. So I spoke to my wife about leaving my 17-year career at that stage in policing, finishing a law degree and then practising as a lawyer. And interestingly enough, some 28, 29 years later I still haven't practised as a lawyer, although I finished a law degree and then did a (laughs) Masters in criminology and a PhD in criminology.
0: Yeah, you took a a fairly big sidestep detour there for a while. I'm sure there's plenty of people listening to this who may recognise your name from your second career. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, and just by and it's funny how things just come
1: out of left field because whilst I was studying um, at Monash University, um, Vic Pol actually spoke to me about uh, did I want to participate in a forum about developing training for crowd controllers and security guards because the then. Private Agents Act in 1990 was was about to be um, uh, introduced and effectively uh, pre-licensing training was an important part of that process so I think those who know me would know that I've trained over 40,000 security staff around Australia including many trainers um, and uh, effectively I, I formed a company called the Australian Institute of Public Safety which I sold 18 years later um, and at the time of sale we had uh, about 50 vocational courses and 8 degrees, so we're almost like a midi-university with a TAFE campus as well, but of course we're a private provider.
0: And that was one of the most successful security private security training businesses in Australia for a long time, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, I think I think we were the largest and, and certainly was seen by government and regulators as the
1: leaders, um, and interestingly enough, of course, you know, associated with security related training. Uh, is uh, you know, occupational violence training, first aid training um,
0: and uh, a number of risk, risk training programs as well. Which is a, a, a great segue into when you finally managed to sell, finally chose to sell off AIPS or Australian Institute of Public Safety, you then moved into this occupational violence training amongst other things. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. Yeah, well it's, well it's interesting because I sold
1: uh, AIPS in 2008 and had to stay on for three years as part of the transition. Uh, And then effectively from there, uh, I'd always consulted and provided expert reports in court um, and, you know, I still do that today. But interestingly enough, uh, back in 2000, I think it was, whilst I still had AIPS, Peninsula Health, which is a healthcare provider, Frankston and Rosebud Hospitals in Victoria. um, They approached and said, look, they needed some specialist training in occupational violence and aggression in managing difficult people. And, uh, and I think it's still reflected today, and that is that there's high levels of violence in the healthcare sector. Um, so we wrote this course, we delivered this course, we trained their trainers, um, and then things just grew from there where all of a sudden other healthcare providers came to us for similar training. And then from there, um, you know, we provided consulting services around Australia, and then it didn't take too long. And then the ATO approached us and wanted some OVA training, occupational violence and aggression training for their staff. And then next minute, we're providing that related training across broad industry sectors. And in actual fact, I've just come back from Chicago where I spoke at a conference. And interestingly enough, um, speaking to healthcare providers in other countries like the UK and the USA, um, they experience the same sort of levels of aggression and violence in healthcare in particular, but across industry sectors that we do here in Australia.
0: Now, the conference you mentioned wasn't just any conference. That was the big annual ACES uh, conference in yes. uh, Chicago, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, known as the GSX, yep. uh, which is a global security
1: exchange. Uh, this year it was held in Chicago. It was only two weeks ago. Um, there were 20,000 delegates. It's it's the world security conference, effectively, and that's, this is where I suppose you know security leaders and those decision makers tend to go um, as part of yep. their networking and their own development.
0: Excellent. So... <coughs> For those people who aren't familiar with this concept, I mean you would assume that all of the people listening to this podcast as security managers probably are, but let's begin by just taking a sort of helicopter view of what is occupational violence and aggression. Well, it's it's um
1: it's behaviors that are experienced in particular in the workplace being occupational violence and aggression. Yep. So so it would be you know committed by persons in the workplace, whether they're internal, whether they're you know colleagues or or, or clients within the workplace or whether they're strangers to the workplace and I suppose that the best way to understand it might be if you're working in say casualty or emergency department of a hospital you'll get a a number of presentations in other words people coming in seeking assistance and uh, some of those people of course may not handle pain, may not handle waiting times, may not handle the circumstances that they're involved in well they may be suffering from, you know, a, a drug addiction. They may be withdrawing. They may be highly intoxicated. They may be suffering a mental illness. So the staff involved in managing those people, um, you know, would, would have to, I suppose, have some level of competency in either communicating with them, diffusing, and managing uh, their aggression if, if they are aggressive. And unfortunately, it's well reported. Healthcare is that high risk area.
0: Yeah. But it's not just limited to
1: healthcare, is it? Oh, not at all. Not at all. I mean, I've had cases, uh, I've done over 500 cases that have gone through the courts. Um, I've had cases where a bank manager and a bank has been attacked um, by a person who was suffering a mental illness. We've had plenty of cases in the hospitality industry. Nightclubs, of course, are high risk, but not just nightclubs. Um, There's been some horrific incidents in casinos and in other licensed operations. Uh, compliance operations, so whether it's um, you know, tram conductors or, or tram inspectors these days, or whether it's people involved in compliance such as police or PSOs, um, you know, there's high levels of violence reported out there. In actual fact, um, Wayne Gatt, who's the Secretary of the Police Association, recently spoke to me about some of the issues faced by Victoria Police members these days, and they're reporting anything up to 30 assaults on police a week. Yeah. So, so there's, you know, there's high levels of, I suppose, violence across industry sectors and professional sectors. I, I ran some training for solicitors recently from a major law firm because they're dealing with some problematic clients uh, in the same sorts of circumstances where they're looking at you know what, what their risks are. And you'd think someone going into a law firm would probably behave, well, not always, unfortunately.
0: Mm. I guess this can arise in pretty much any professional environment where someone feels that there has been an injustice or they've been in some way aggrieved and aren't dealing with that particularly well. That's true. That's quite true. And, and look, you know, interestingly enough, some of the histories
1: of, of the people who are perpetrators in, in this sort of behaviour, they have a history that indicates that they don't handle disappointment or they don't handle situations that, that may frustrate uh, particularly well. And of course their response is instead
0: of talking, um, quite often it's actions. Yeah, I mean, it's not a new problem. I remember going back oh god 25-odd years now doing some work for Control Risk Group where yes. they wanted security on site for a, a a company where one of their senior leadership team was being informed that he had not only not received the promotion but was in fact being let go Uh, and he had a, an extensive background in martial arts and all sorts of other things and they were like, oh, this is going to get pretty pear-shaped. So, yeah, yes, it's uh, not a new problem. Yeah, it's quite true. And, of course, some people may have the misconception that you know dealing with occupational violence and aggression, the kind of training that you're providing is some sort of martial arts training. That couldn't be further from the truth. That's true. Yeah. yeah it, it, and it's
1: certainly, I mean, it's one of the most important things, I suppose, is for any system within a workplace, it really has to be based upon a risk assessment firstly. So it's not just a matter of going in and saying to these people, this is the way that we manage circumstances in, in a variety of situations. It's about understanding the system of work that applies in the first place because part of the paper I delivered in Chicago was really talking about public-facing staff and the risks that, that, that they may face. So a receptionist in an in a, um, office complex might be just as much exposed to the risk of occupational violence as, say, a par- paramedic responding to, say, an emergency call in the street. So everything has to be based upon a risk assessment, firstly.
0: Yeah. And, of course, the word violence is a- an interesting word because it's a catch-all that's designed to talk about a range of different things. Most people associate violence with physical violence, but there are multiple different kinds of violence. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, OVA, or Occupational Violence and Aggression, is
1: really, you know, it's it's almost a continuum. And the World Health Organization, back in, I think it was 2002, tried to capture all types of violence and when, it, when we say violence violence can go from you know um, passive behaviours where someone is just indicating that they aren't very unhappy about something but they make someone else feel uneasy by that behaviour right through to death um, yep. and, and effectively you know as you as you proceed along that continuum uh, you know, it might go from say those aggressive words or gr- aggressive looks or invading someone's body space or finger pointing or you know someone running their finger across their throat like I'm going to cut your throat right through to you know pushing, shoving, you know, uh, and the, and then the physical striking. So yep. so you know it, it's it's occupational violence is really all of those. And the World Health Organization tried to explain it, and uh, from memory they they um, they actually defined it. Um, as, as involving those types of, of behaviours, you know, where it goes from passive words right through to, to um you know physical assault of another.
0: Yep. I mean we all most people would recognise violence in the form of physical violence when they see it. Yes. But you talk about in your presentation uh, psychological, emotional and sexual violence. I mean Yes. Walk me through what you're talking about as far as emotional violence is concerned, because that's something probably a lot of people, especially from a security management point of view, may not necessarily immediately recognise, hey, that's a form of violence. Yes, yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, common forms of violence typically are
1: those four areas that you talked about, physical, psychological, emotional and sexual. And I think physical violence, you know, most people would know that, you know, that, that would be... The use of a part of a body or an object against another person, psychological might be using threats or causes fear against another person. Mm. The the emotional area is really something that that uh, quite often people might recognise that as a form of workplace bullying. Yep. But it, you know, and, and uh, back in two thousand and three, Worksafe Victoria uh, released a publication which talked about bullying and violence in the workplace. It's freely available online, and if you did a search online, you'd be able to find it. But emotional violence um, is is that bullying types of behaviour where really a person does or says something to make a person feel useless or feel you know unworthy in the circumstances. You know, sometimes jokes p- that are put downs, but if yep. they're continuous jokes or continual jokes, um, you might find that that you know that that is now becoming part of the bullying um, yeah. um, interactions between between colleagues.
0: And I guess that's where a lot of people sort of come unstuck with this kind of thing is that they don't necessarily realise that any action, whether it be verbal, psychological or just behavioural, carried out by one person against another that makes that person feel uncomfortable in any way, yes. is considered a form of violence. Yeah, that's true. That's quite yeah. true. And, and I mean, yeah, you know, some of the cases that go
1: before the courts or before, before Fair Work Australia, where there is discussions about okay so what types of interactions occurred between say colleagues in the workplace rather than say a stranger to the workplace it's a high risk for employers these days you Mm -hmm. know where supervisors and managers need to think quite clearly about you know the 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 way that people interact with each other you know gone are the days where you know the excuse of a joke is good enough Um, certainly we can still have great relationships with colleagues in the workplace but we still have to be a bit careful there are limits
0: Yeah, and I guess that's a really interesting point that sort of takes us to our next part of this discussion is, you know, political correctness is one of those things now where as culture has, as Australia becomes more and more multicultural, which is one of the things that makes it such a wonderful and fascinating and and awesome country, we do have to be mindful of the fact that we now have cultural boundaries, we have gender boundaries, we have all sorts of divides with, you know, the LGBTI community going on in the workplace. Like there are are so many things now that we need to be mindful of um, that we probably didn't have to worry about 10, 15, 20 years ago, or more to the point, maybe we just weren't as aware of back in those days. So as an organisation, and as the security manager within that organisation, where do I even begin? to start looking at my risk profile in these sorts of things? How do I begin to manage this issue? I I think the first thing that needs
1: to be considered, and and i talked about risk assessments before, um, the risk profile, really, you you need to understand, I suppose, the types of interactions that are occurring in and around the workplace. You know, what what are the actual exposures and the types of interactions that might be occurring? So are the interactions just uh, colleague-based? Are they client-based? Are members of the public entering and leaving the workforce or the workplace? Um, so those sorts of factors need to be considered. You know, there there are what's called predictive factors associated with OVA. And, uh, you know, the predictive factors are things like the worker is usually isolated. So, so uh, quite often you'll find that seems to be the trend now. It's not the golden rule, but it's a trend. Um, there might be an absence of what's called capable guardianship. In other words, you know, the, the person is isolated, so they're by themselves. And if anything does occur, then th- there's not normally another colleague who might be, say, in earshot or, or in a direct um, a line of sight. There might be poor access control to the immediate area, so a receptionist might be there by him or herself. Normally it's a, it's a female. So, you know, someone might be sitting there at a reception desk by themselves again with no support Yep. Um, you know there might be deficiencies in what's called layers of security so there may be you know um, no connection of eyes between inside and outside the the premises or the workplace uh, there may be no access control strategies where a person can you know effectively isolate themselves away from others if, if situations are getting out of hand uh, there might be poor covert protections like there may be no communication strategy or a duress alarm or or any form of calling for assistance. Uh, There might be deficiencies in the layout of the place. So there might be what's called dual purpose weapons um, or uh, weapons of convenience. So, you know, someone who who might be um, managing a situation very poorly, say as an aggressor, uh, can pick up something from a desk and throw it at the worker, um, for example. So that that, that can be another um, issue deficiencies in training so awareness you know some some a lot of the times in some of the cases that go before the courts or just in in investigations of incidents comments are made by workers about it always happens to someone else and not me and Mm. they're, they're almost surprised that now they've been involved in an ova incident and there might be deficiencies or an absence of protocols or induction or supervision of workers as well so there's a whole lot of predictive factors and these things need to be considered in the context of risk to then be able to put into place reasonable protections. And when we say reasonable protections, you know, I always say, in court cases, a negligence action, so in other words, a breach of the duty of care, um, is not a, a negligence action. Is not a exercise in perfection. It's an exercise in reasonableness. What was a reasonable system that should have been in place to minimise risk?
0: Sure. So when you're talking about predictive factors, we're not talking about. Factors that predict whether or not someone's going to act in a violent way. You're talking about factors that predict that there could have potentially been a situation enabled to arise that leads to OVA. So, you know, you're your lone service station worker sitting there on their own in the middle of the night, your receptionist sitting out isolated from the rest of the business in reception. Um, You know, those single points of contact where you look at the various factors around their work circumstance and their workplace and say, we could have predicted based on these, that you know what what we used to call in security training what was reasonably foreseeable. Yes, that's it was tr- it was reasonable reasonably foreseeable that this was going to happen based on these circumstances. Correct, correct. And and if you went through those points
1: that I've just raised, um, you know, and, and if you said okay, there were deficiencies in worker isolation, guardianship layers of security training yep. induction etc., um, that really just says the person was working within a poor system of work.
0: And if there's a poor system of work, then that's probably your key predictive factor. Right. So then, to extrapolate on that, is it is it reasonable to sort of assume that what you're you're saying is if I've got a receptionist, and um, it could be in a bank, it could be in a a corporate environment, it could be any type of uh, environment, and she or he is exposed to occupational violence, one of the first questions that's going to be asked in court is what training has that person been given around how to deal with occupational violence? And if the answer to that is none, I've now got a real problem. That's true. That's true. And, and and not only would the question be
1: what training, my question normally is in these cases you know, pre-trial, my question normally is what was the system of work this person was inducted into? So not only is it the training what levels of supervision applied, Um, what was the induction process, in other words, you know, even just awareness of the local environment. So a person who works, say, as a receptionist in this case, um, you know, what are they actually told about the potential risks that may apply to their work position? So, So it's not only the training, it's also, are there protocols or procedures in place that will guide? Is there a policy? Um, levels of supervision and of course that direct training is also very relevant to this
0: proactively uh-huh. and reactively. Even just this, things I'm assuming as simple as explaining to people who work in those reception type roles if someone's getting verbally abusive with you you don't have to put up with that you you have your well within your eyes to say to them you can't speak to me like that I'm going to leave, or whatever it may be. Yes, yeah, and look, you know, there may be a strategy. It might be let me see if I can get
1: someone to come and help you, and they mm. use that as an excuse to actually strategically withdraw from the situation, yeah, without necessarily going to get any help. Um, you know, there was a case recently involving local government where you, where there was a, a female receptionist again who was being abused, and that was her standard line: "Let me see if I can go and." get
0: my supervisor to come and help you. And that was her excuse just to get away. Yep. So walk me through some of the more common instances that we're seeing here in Australia, and then we can talk a little bit about perhaps how they could have been avoided. Yeah, well, interestingly
1: enough, I suppose, you know, in, in Australia uh, about, and this is, uh, this is some of the data that we actually uh, gather um, that from, from Safe Work Australia, uh, and that is about 110,000 Australian workers are victims of OVA annually. So wow. that's a substantial number of mm. people. And keep in mind, a lot of OVA incidents go unreported because people become desensitised. And, and my work in the healthcare sector certainly has identified that, you know, nurses, just their view is that just part of the job to be abused or spat on or pushed or threatened. Mm. Um, but, uh, but, you know, Safe Work Australia has said, say, about 110,000 Australian workers. Twenty-two percent of all sector workers reported OVA in um, in 2017. That's of those who wanted to report. So 22 percent of all sector workers, and yet 60 percent of healthcare workers reported OVA in 2017. So when you think about that, you know that healthcare is known for being that high level, high level of risk. Although VicPol um, said about 3,000 members uh, were subject to OVA in 2017, and interestingly enough. New South Wales police reported about 2,600. So even though it's a slightly bigger police force, they reported less A.V.A., slightly less than what Big Poll reported. And uh, interestingly enough, about 39% of all workers injured um, claim a mental health disorder from A.V.A. as well. So certainly, it's not just the physical impact; it's also the mental impact of, uh, of A.V.A. type of incidents. So, you know, from an Australian snapshot point of view, we're not dissimilar to what. Uh, we saw in the US and also what I see in the UK because obviously our research goes across borders and
0: and different jurisdictions. And I suppose that's an interesting point too because we often tend to think about these things in terms of physical injuries but I imagine there's a significant amount based on what you've said there of post-traumatic stress and all sorts of other things that arise from these things. I mean, I can imagine if I'm a security officer working at a, a live concert or a venue or whatever and some sort of, you know... Fracas breaks out and there's, you know, 10 people involved and I sustain, a, you know, a black eye and a broken wrist and a few other bits and pieces. you Sure, those injuries are going to pass four weeks later, five weeks later, I'll be back at work. But psychologically, I'm dealing with that for a long time. That's true. And that's
1: true. And, I, and you know, as, as I regularly say, you don't know what goes through a person's mind when they put their head on the pillow at night. Mm. Uh, and, and effectively, sometimes, you know, people will have flashbacks and relive these types of incidents. Um, At other times, of course, they may just suffer a nervous shock, um, be unsettled for a few days and recover. But but certainly if it's a long-lasting injury, post-traumatic stress disorder is the common common, um, ongoing injury these days. So Mm -hmm. the physical, as you rightly say,
0: people will get over the physical, but it's more the mental. So then in a, a context like the security industry where we are providing workers who are supposed to be dealing with confrontational people in sometimes confrontational environments Mm. there I imagine would be a tendency and I'm only harkening back to my own experience here but you know you you have this mentality of well it's just part of the job this is just what I do I'm expected to deal with people who are gonna want to spit on me punch me have a go at me but I suppose that's not really the right way to look at it because you know why should they be any more subject to occupational violence than anyone else yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's quite true. And I suppose, you
1: know, if you looked at it from, say, a, a pure operational legal perspective, um, you know, work, work health and safety duties, I mean, duties fall to employers and those who manage or control work these days. So it's not just a matter of saying, well, all right, this is just part of the job. And it's not just a matter of relying on pre-licensing training. Because at the end of the day, as we all know out there, if you want you do a 17-day Victorian course or a five-day Queensland course at Cert two level, it's a generic course. It's not a course that, that uh, provides you with the skills to work at the MCG, for example, or at the casino or your local licensed premises or your local shopping centre or as a patrol officer. There has to be some site-specific induction uh, for that particular role. In other words, induction and training relevant to the risk. So um, you know, a lot of the sad thing, I suppose, is a lot of the times uh, from the experience I've had is um, employers say "But the person was trained and licensed, but they were just trained generically, not for that particular role. So uh, coming back to the point that you raised about it's not just part of the job. A person has to be uh, inducted into their workplace and trained and supervised relevant to the risk of their workplace. So hence it comes back to there has to be a risk assessment and from that risk assessment, there has to be specific strategies introduced
0: that's going to minimise risk for that worker, not just as part of the job. It's an interesting discussion, though, because I imagine that there's going to be times where you know people in the security industry are exposed to violence, yes. and they take exception to that, and they say, you know, I, you know, I'm not dealing with this. Well. And the reaction from a lot of people is going to be, well, th- th- what are you talking about? I mean, your insecurity, that's like a firefighter to saying, I don't like fire. Yes. I mean, this is crazy. How does this work? And, and it's interesting you raise that because, I mean, you know, about 17 years in Victoria,
1: police ta- taught me a lot about violence and, uh, you know, high-level violence. So not only just normal street interactions, you know, through to, you know, weapons and, and uh, shots being fired, etc. And uh, And certainly, you know, it's, uh, it's something that, now I think most policing organisations and, and the security industry is sort of heading that way and that is recognising that yes, violence is a reality of modern operations, whether it's public policing or private policing, which is really what the security industry do. They perform a policing type role and um, you know, so violence is a reality, but preparing people to manage violence uh, is the best way to go because at the end of the day it's going to minimize the impact of that violence against people not just oh it's part of the job it shouldn't never be accepted as part of the job it's what strategies need to
0: be in place to minimize the exposures to individuals
1: and teams working
0: in security so let's talk about that for for a minute because i imagine the realities of any sort of security role just like a policing role just like to some degree you know any role involving a public facing environment where you're going to be dealing with disgruntled people. And I'm not talking about ambulance workers, because that's different. They're there to render first aid and medical assistance. They're not there to deal with emotionally disturbed, violent, angry, drunk, pissed off people. Yes, right. At what point does it go from, John, just harden up, mate, this is part of your job, to, okay, now this is an occupational violence and aggression issue. And how do I, as a security company mitigate and manage that risk. Yeah. And look, you
1: know, it comes back to that risk assessment, as I said, in particular, um, you know, the, the risk factors that are present in the workplace need to be identified. That, that's yep. the that's starting point. So you can't build a system unless you know what the problem is for that system. Um, the incidents in the workplace or similar workplaces need to be taken into account. So is this a high level workplace? I mean, you know, to me, um, a security guard working at a shopping centre exposed to a whole range of different things and occasionally an apprehension by a lost prevention officer from one of the retail stores. And there's your poor old security guard in the shopping yep. centre who's now been dragged into an arrest and a confrontation. Um, you know, Similarly, there may be incidents in passenger screening at an airport. Yep. So, so public-facing types of roles, unfortunately, just sometimes bring these incidents uh, t- to the worker. So, so effectively, you know, this risk assessment is particularly important. The frequency of incidents in the workplace or similar workplaces needs to be taken into account against the level of activity and the times of activity, and of course the adequacy of treatments or controls that are in place. So I think I can safely say, uh, through my experience, and I'm not saying I'm the expert in all of this, but through my experience, I think it's safe to say if there's a deficiency in a risk assessment, then that normally translates into poor management of incidents and injuries to workers. So, yep. so you know, so so the, the very basic approach of, um, you know, harden up young fella um, just doesn't make sense. It logically doesn't flow from what, what we've just talked about here about risk assessments and systems.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I guess that that mentality is born of an age when, you know, we just gave people a certificate and pushed them out the door and went, there you go, you'll be right. Now, you know, go out and do your job, go yes. out and be a security officer. So it starts with the risk assessment. But if you were able to sort of sit down with a room full of security managers and say, here's the top five things that you need to do to protect yourself against occupational violence and aggression risks, beginning, obviously, number one being the risk assessment, what would two, three, four and five look like on that list? Well, number two to me would be, um, you
1: know, it has to be a formal system that's developed. In other words, a documented system. And anyone that's ever heard me speak in any forum would hear this line time and time again. And that is the weakest part of a system is the exercise of discretion by individuals who work within that system. In other words, if two or three different security guards can decide based upon their discretion how they might manage a situation, then that's a weak part of a system because what there should be is training and protocols that ensure people do the job consistently across shifts and across teams and across personnel. So the weakest part of a system. So so it has to be a formalised system. So from the risk assessment should be a documented policy, a documented plan and documented procedures. And therefore people are then, now leading into three, are inducted, trained, supervised and sometimes even disciplined against the non-compliance with that formalised system. So yep. so the risk assessment, the formalised system, and people are then inducted, trained, supervised, etc. against that formalised system. Uh, number four would then be a ongoing review. Is the system still appropriate 12 months down the track? You know, it wasn't that many years ago, the drug ICE, the illicit drug ICE, yep. was not prominent. Wasn't that many years ago. Now it's very prominent. So certainly times change so systems have to be reviewed to ensure that what was put into place 12 months or two years ago is still current today and then of course and that needs to be formalized so that needs to be documented as well and then of course number five would be constant monitoring of the mental uh,
0: health of your people yeah. And so it, it all begins with that risk assessment and then having those policies and procedures in place because yes. you, you can't manage what you can't measure and sort of say, well, here's the standard and you're not maintaining that standard. Otherwise, it just becomes chaos. Yeah. it's And it's quite true. And interestingly
1: enough, every jurisdiction, it's, when I say every jurisdiction, every Australian jurisdiction uh, whether it's a territory or a state, has a WorkSafe or work cover authority and, of course, the umbrella organisation above that at the national level of Safe Work Australia. Every state has guidance notes, a guidance uh, booklet, freely available online, that talks about aggression, occupational violence in the workplace. Every state. Uh, Victoria published its first one in 2003. They brought out another one in 2014 and they brought out an updated edition in 2015. Uh, And that's for, that's across industry sectors. There are specialist guides too for healthcare and high risk areas, such as policing. But certainly, um, you know,
0: every every state has got it for for, um, OVA across all work sectors. And now, if people want to know more about this, you've included sections of this in your new book. You have a book out. Tell us about your book, an introduction to operational security risk management, <laughs> which was really, I suppose, a combination. Th- thanks for the um, the, <laughs>
1: the selling point. Um, it was really a combination, I suppose, of my experiences over the last you know twenty something years, working with people and and um, and and working with organisations, whether they're public, private, working with security providers and security firms but also involved in training of people and understanding, I suppose, it's a simplistic book that I wrote that, that, that is applicable globally. So I just don't talk about Australian legislation. I talk about principles of health and safety, for example, rather than the you know, Occupational Health and Safety Act that may apply in a particular state or territory. So therefore, you know, the book is really suitable for anyone who has a responsibility for security, safety or risk. Um, it was published uh, in January this year. Uh, it's selling very well. Uh, I was actually very, very much surprised by the number of that's actually been sold at this stage globally. Yep. Um, but, you know, it, it has a, a number of chapters in it and one of those chapters is occupational violence and aggression. But certainly I talk about operational security risk management from the context of you have to understand what a risk assessment really is all about to be able to minimise risk operationally.
0: Yeah, well I imagine most of the people listening to this podcast being senior security personnel and security managers would understand the concept of risk management and risk assessment but it would be interesting to know how many of them actually apply them to their workforce in the context of occupational violence and aggression. I mean I imagine in your role um, you know providing legal or providing you know court advice to people and all sorts of other bits and pieces you're seeing all sorts of things at the moment is this still an issue that a lot of people don't understand well or aren't taking as seriously as they should be?
1: It is. It is an issue, and I think the sad thing probably is, and as I said before, you know, over 500 cases behind me. One of the one of the sad things is during the pre-trial investigation, in other words, what's called the exchange of questions and answers between the plaintiffs' lawyers and the insurance or the workers' lawyers. Uh, questions and answers go backwards and forwards that are referred to as interrogatories. So the exchange of interrogatories is, is, you know, so what what system was this person introduced into? And the other side may come back and say, oh, they're inducted, but they're inducted verbally. Um, or or if, they, if they're a little bit perhaps less prudent, they might say they're inducted in our formal system. And, of course, then the other side can discover that system. They can then come back and say, well, all right, what was your formal system? Give us a copy of that system so that our expert can actually look at it. The very sad thing is in, in a lot of these cases, there is no formal system.
0: Mm.
1: So the exercise of discretion, OVA has been missed in a risk assessment or OVA has not been taken seriously in a risk assessment. And, um, and you know I've, I had a, I've got a case that, that um, recently uh, settled in New South Wales involving a major transport, public transport provider. And they identify in their risk register, OVA is a risk. But mm. there's no treatments or controls for that. So there's no induction. There's no training, there's no supervision, there were no policies or procedures about OVA, just it sits in
0: a risk register. Well, that's you know that's not too helpful, of course. No. And coming back to what you mentioned before is point four, which is constant review of the system. Yes. I imagine there's a multitude of instances where someone's gone to the effort of writing policies and procedures around OVA and then it's sat in a manual on a shelf for seven years and no one's ever looked at it since. That's true. That's true, yeah. And that's not uncommon as well. You know, the sad thing
1: probably is, um, you know, good practices minimises the risk of litigation. But the sad thing is, during litigation, there is so much exposure of systems that someone like me can see uh, as part of this pre-trial investigation. Um, you know, it's, it's sometimes a little bit sad to look at, you know, an operator and think, well, you knew that there was a risk, but you didn't treat the risk, and unfortunately, therefore, someone's been injured. If the risk was treated. Someone may never have been injured and of course someone like me wouldn't have a job
0: in that area. What about small, because there's a a, a vast number of them out there, what about small sort of security companies that are probably under 10 people that I guess to some degree have no idea that this is even a challenge for them, that this is something that they should be thinking about? Where do they sit in this whole discussion?
1: I, I would say that a smaller company is probably in a better position than the larger company because effectively if, if they went online, if they did their famous Google search and got, yep. and got the the WorkSafe guide, say, for this particular state or, or whichever jurisdiction someone is from, uh, if they got the guide, you'd see it says, it, it provides very good advice about how to conduct the risk assessment and then the treatments that should be in place for ava related risks. So, you know, a smaller company is probably in a better position because it's a more personal um, I suppose, uh, level of interaction between workers and a larger company where sometimes people are lost in the numbers of workers.
0: Yeah, okay. Tony, if people want to find out more about your book or you, where do they go? Uh, they can uh, do their very famous search and go
1: to uh, Global Public Safety. Um, they could send me uh, an email if they wanted to, which is info at gpsafety.com.au um, and uh, but certainly, global public safety. Uh, the book is clearly
0: um, uh, highlighted on the web on the website as well. And again, the name of the book is "An Introduction to Operational Security and Risk Management." Tony, thank you very much for coming in today. Pleasure, John. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to get more of these podcasts. You can go to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, uh, all of the usual haunts where you'll find great podcasts just like this one. And don't forget that the uh, ASIAL Security Insider Podcast has a whole range of other topics available. So we look forward to catching up with you again next time. Thank you very much.